All right, it's time for a little ad break. I got to tell you about HubSpot's HubSpot for Startups program. So if you're a startup and you're trying to grow, this thing is pretty great. You get a huge discount, 30 to 90% off on a tool that your whole sales and marketing team can use to help you scale as you grow. We use this in our companies. I think you should too. They have tons of resources. They got great customer support, tons of integration with popular apps that you use. You got to check it out. So it's the HubSpot for Startups program. You can check it out at HubSpot.com slash startups. At some point, we tried to raise more money, and you know the investor was like, <clears throat> the entire natural deodorant industry is something like $30 million a year, so why would anyone be interested in investing in a category that only has $30 million a year run rates? And I was like, if the natural deodorant industry is $30 million a year, we're the entire natural deodorant industry. <laughs> we're doing $30 million a year at this point. Okay, I gotta say it. This was my favorite episode of the podcast. What you're about to hear is a episode I just recorded with Moise Ali. He is the founder of Native Deodorant, which is a natural deodorant brand. It's basically a $12 stick of deodorant. My wife just bought it. She doesn't know that I know Moise. She bought it because she didn't want to use deodorant that had aluminum in it or parabens, all kinds of funky chemicals that you see on the back of a deodorant stick. So this is the story of how he started it from his brother's dining room table, essentially, where he was doing the packaging. He was doing the sales, the marketing the customer service as a one-man show for a very, very long time. And uh, over over two and a half years, uh, he built this company raising very, very little money, mostly because investors were kind of just laughing him out of the room. Like, okay, you're starting a deodorant company? Like, what is that? And so he sold it two and a half years later to Procter & Gamble for $100 million. I liked this episode, not just because the story is great and the tactics that he shared are actually quite insightful, but because he's a very entertaining guy, very charismatic. In fact, there's a portion at the end of the episode where he is talking about how some people who didn't believe in him, and he named some names that we had to bleep out. So we, we left the story in, but we had to bleep out the names, which is a, a podcast first. But I think you guys are going to love this episode. Let me know what you think. As always, you can tweet at me. I'm at SeanVP or email me puri.sean at gmail.com. Love to hear from you guys. All right. Enjoy this episode. Native deodorant, you build a deodorant brand of all things. Yeah. You build it from scratch, from a dining room table. You build a actually good enough business where Procter & Gamble, one of the biggest companies in the world, looks at it, makes an acquisition, and buys native deodorant for $100 million. So that's the end. But we're going to rewind to the beginning. The beginning is what? Set the scene. So where are you when you have the idea for native deodorant? So I'm in New York City running another e-commerce business. I'm buying like Axe deodorant from a Dwayne Reed at 14th and 3rd in New York City. You know, I've, I've lived in the same place for like four years. And so I'm really familiar with this place. I go buy it. I'm waiting in line. I flip over my deodorant and I can't pronounce a single ingredient on the back of that thing other than the word aluminum. And, you know, I, I've been seeing this problem for the last four years since I've been buying the deodorant from Dwayne Reed. And, you know, I'm an attorney. I, I'm not a dumb guy. I know how to read English, and I cannot pronounce a single one of these words. And so I'm like, if this product is going to stay on my body all day, every day, you know, I put it on right after I get out of the shower. It's on my body for 23 hours and 45 minutes, and it'll be on my body for 23 hours and 45 minutes for the next 60 years. I should at least be able to pronounce some of the ingredients in this thing. And so that's really where the problem starts. And then my sister gets pregnant, and, you know, she's telling me how she's using Dove, and she's like, I'm really scared of Dove because... 
I'm about to start breastfeeding and what happens with the ingredients in my dove and do they like get into, you know, my baby as a result of me using this antiperspirant. And so I'm like, okay, now this is a, not a hair on fire problem, but a problem large enough for me to solve. Right. And that's, that's how Native starts. So my wife is currently eight months pregnant. And she started using Native, and she was like, yeah, I just bought this, like, $12 deodorant. <laughs> and I was like, is it Native? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, dude, I'm, gonna, I'm about to have him on the podcast. Amazing. And then she was like, I was like, why did you choose to buy it? And she was saying the same thing, like, oh, you know, because of the baby, I'm, like, I have a heightened awareness around what am I putting on my body and in my body. And she was like, it's paraben-free. And I, I was like, what's a paraben? I have no, what is sure. a paraben? I actually don't even know. It, like, um, the, the real thing that we shoot for is like we're aluminum, paraben, and phthalate-free. Aluminum is probably the largest thing that we're, like, people are concerned about when it comes to the deodorant category. And what it does is aluminum acts as like a plug to block your sweat glands from excreting sweat. I see. And so if you think of your sweat glands as like a duct, aluminum acts as a plug. And as a result, you can't sweat. And, and that's why when you use an aluminum-based product. It's called an antiperspirant. It stops you from perspiring. And the way I always liken it is, look, if you could take a pill to make you stop urinating, would you take that pill? Doesn't that sound so weird? Like if your body is trying to expel a fluid fr- from itself, shouldn't you let it? I'm like, yeah, okay, I want to go to the bathroom. Like this is a bodily need. I don't want to take a pill to stop going to the bathroom. I just want to go and pee. And so that's the way I thought about sweating. I was like, look, if your body wants to sweat because it's really hot, let it sweat. Let the deodorant sort of absorb the sweat and block odors, but we don't need to prevent it from sweating. And so that that was like the genesis of like, okay, look, we think we can create a deodorant that does the job of an antiperspirant. The other way I thought about it was, look, like a lot of us work in office environments where we commute in a car, we get to an office, we sit at a desk and work at a computer. And, you know, using an antiperspirant every day, we're generally not in an environment where we're going to be sweating a ton. So it's like taking an Advil in the morning when all you need is a glass of water. You're like dehydrated. And so all you, what you should be doing is drinking a glass of water. But instead, you're like, let me take an Advil to cure my dehydration. Just take the glass of water. It's a lot simpler <laughs> and safer. Right. And, and so that's the way I like it. Using native to an antiperspirant, I was like, "Look, you're probably working in an office job, or a lot of a lot of our customers are working in office jobs. You don't necessarily need all the effects of an antiperspirant. An aluminum-free deodorant will uh, do the job for you." And so. You say we, but at the beginning, it was just you, correct? That's right. Uh, So we launched the company in July 2015. I remember I bought the domain name on my birthday in July 2015. Why the name Native? Why why that domain? Yeah, sure. Uh, I really liked what it stood for, which was like we wanted to use ingredients that were like native to the earth. Like we weren't trying to say, hey, this is owned by Native Americans. And we weren't trying to say we're a natural product and we'll never use an artificial ingredient because I don't think that that's necessarily the case. What we wanted to say is like, look, we want to use ingredients that are native to the earth and we want to make those ingredients part of our deodorant as opposed to using ingredients that nobody can pronounce. And so that was the genesis of the name. Bought the name in July 2015. Basically 12 days later launched the business. I was like, you know what? I I think we can launch this business really quickly and see if it works. But what do you mean? What do you mean launch the business? Because how do you even have deodorant? Uh, If I wanted to launch a deodorant brand, I'd be like, okay, I guess I need to manufacture some deodorant or buy some, you know, how did you do something 12 days later? Yeah, great question. Um, so launched the website, had zero deodorants in stock, was speaking to a couple manufacturers about using our deodorant formula and having them make it. But initially, I was like, look, I don't think this business will work out. Like, are people going to buy a deodorant online? Generally, they're buying it at Dwayne Reed's and Walmart's and Target's. So I was like, uh, we'll launch it and we'll see what happens. And so we had contacted some manufacturers, particularly like small mom and pop ones. And our first mom and pop manufacturer was basically making the deodorant out of like their hot 
hobby room in their house right. somewhere in Southern California. I launched the product on Product Hunt. And so day one, I, I look, you know, it's late July. I put it on Product Hunt. Product Hunt has multiple pages, and I don't even realize that. We're on page two of Product Hunt. We get one sale, and I'm like, okay, this business is over. Forget about it. Like, I'm not going to do all this hard work to sell $12 of deodorant every right. day. I can open up a lemonade. Like, I'm 30 years old, and I'm basically I'm having a revenue of $12 a day. Right. So you, you literally launched like without a bang. It's That's like right. the opposite of a good launch. Yeah, exactly. One the sale. opposite of a good launch. Uh, one sale had zero product in inventory. I was going to email the guy and basically be like, look, we were trying this out. It didn't work out. Uh, we're going to refund your order. Have a nice life. Right. And then what happens is I'm working out of this co-working space called the Founders Dojo. And one of my friends in that co-working space is like, hey, I know an employee of Product Hunt. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have him try and put you on the first page of Product Hunt again tomorrow. And usually you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to be on Product Hunt two days in a row. But he got me an exception. And I'm on the first page of Product Hunt the day after I was on the second page. And what was the little tagline at that time? Because I know that for businesses, the pitch evolves. Like right now, when you describe data, it was like really compelling. I loved it. Made sense to me. It was kind of inspiring. Yeah, I should use products like that. But I know at the beginning... Our pitches like kind of suck, or they, you know, oh, over for time sure. they suck less. Yeah, yeah. So oh, it was terrible. What was it at the time? I, I think remember? it was like invest in yourself. I'm not even sure. <laughs> it was like, and you know, we had gotten it's like a, a financial product. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we got in a photo, like you know, we didn't take any photos at the time because we didn't have any products. So we got some guy to like 3D render the image of what a native deodorant bar would look right. like, <laughs> and like that's the image that we have associated with Product Hunt. On our website, we have a hero image, and the hero image is just a bathroom. It doesn't even have a photo of native deodorant on it because no native deodorant exists at this point. (laughs) But on that second day, we get like 50 sales, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe this can be a real business. So as a result, now we have like 51 sales. We got 50 sales day two, one sale day one. We contact our manufacturer, and we're like, okay, we're going to buy 100 of these things, ship them over. We have a tangled history with the guests that you're going to talk about. So you, you mentioned Product Hunt. We had Ryan Hoover on the podcast. Yeah. You mentioned Founders Dojo, I think, earlier when we were talking. Yeah. Sam was on the podcast uh, earlier. And your brother was the first episode of the podcast, actually till this day, the highest highest sort of listened podcast. Oh, good for him. Yet. And so he said that, he said told a story on the podcast, which was that at some point you guys were like ordering deodorants off Etsy and like you're just testing deodorants. You were like, put one under one arm, the other under the other arm and like go run around the block and see which one worked better. Was he full of shit or was this real? No, that was definitely real. <laughs> we were like before I launched Native, I was like, okay, you know what? I want a natural deodorant that works. Um, so does my sister because she's pregnant. So I started testing every deodorant I could find. <laughs> I tested like the Tom's and Mains of the world, the Schmitz of the world, the uh, you know the Etsy deodorants of the world, and I was just like, look, these products aren't cutting it. I'm not sure if it's my personal body chemistry or what it is, but yeah, there, we were testing natural deodorants left and right <laughs> from Etsy and from every store you could possibly imagine. Gotcha. So you order those that first batch. That first batch, fifty customers. Yeah, I'm living out of like Solomon's apartment. I I moved to California, like you know, during that time period. Basically, moved to California, living out of my brother's apartment. Order a hundred units, start packing them on a dining room table. So I get like Uline boxes delivered to the house. I get a bunch of crinkle paper delivered to the house. What's wonderful is my brother is the messiest person in the world. When I moved in, he had a birthday cake from like three birthdays ago still in his refrigerator. (laughs) I moved in, and I'm like, I I can't live like this. You're you're too much of a pig to like. I can't live like this. And then I was like, you know what? This is perfect because I've got all this crinkle paper and all these shipping boxes and all this stuff floating around here. And it's making a huge mess. And my brother's the only person in the world who wouldn't care. Yeah. Yeah. He he doesn't even notice the mess because he's just like living in a pigsty himself. And so we're shipping these boxes out. We ship 60 out. And then sales start dropping because 
you know, we're off with product hunt. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And my last business, we had built the entire business on PR. I start contacting all of these like reporters and I'm like, hey, do you want to write about native? And they're like, no. Uh, this is a deodorant. Let's let's take a chill pill over here. Right. This isn't that compelling. And this is in 2015. You know, like today, there's a new natural deodorant that launches every day. In 2015, we're basically one of the few guys out there. And, and so we start like we start running a bunch of Google ads. And you know, we haven't fundraised, so it's all my own money. I spent so, so how, how much money? Yes, yeah, it sounds like you're going to answer that. How much money did you decide like? I'll put into my kind of testing and figuring out if this is real budget. Yeah, I'm the cheapest person in the world. So I probably spent like um, a grand launching the business. So uh, the first $500 was to buy products and the next $500 is to like buy Google ads. And I'm buying Google ads and I spend $500 and I get like $100 in, uh, of sales. And I'm like, this is not working out right. well. I found a way to yeah. burn money. Yeah, exactly. And th- this is the, like, my mom would be so upset at me right now. <laughs> She'd be like, go quit this business tomorrow. And so I'm like, okay, Google ads aren't working. So st- we start advertising on Facebook. And like pretty clearly, we get some product market fit on Facebook. Facebook ads start going well. And like what happens is I created this Excel spreadsheet where every day I tracked every single ad I had, the click-through rate, the you know, CPA, the return on investment. And I start doing that every day starting you know, probably uh, August 2015 or maybe uh, September 2015. And like that's really how I started getting good at Facebook ads. I was tracking every single ad we ran on a daily basis. And I'm going to guess... You're now, you know, company got acquired, company's much larger, lots of people in the company. Do you still get hands-on with the Facebook ads? Definitely. You're saying today? Yeah, today. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, that, like, I, like that's my, that was our bread and butter, and I, I really enjoyed it. And it's something I'm good at. And it's not just a job for me. It's something I really enjoy. In fact, I was at Facebook's headquarters like two days ago talking about Facebook ads with a bunch of nice. their execs. And it's great like uh, to understand what products that they're launching and how they're thinking about the business. It's insane. But in any case, so, so we're like running these Facebook ads. We see a ton of product market fit. And then our manufacturer you know, scales from 100, 100 units a week to about 500 units a week. She calls me up and she's He's like, Moise, this is a fantastic business. I used to be selling, you know, products at a farmer's market, and now I'm making 500 dealers for you a week. You know, they're charging me about $6 a unit. So it's pretty expensive. Right. And I'm like, okay, great. I'm glad this is working for you. And she's like, we're going to scale this business. We're both going to, like, hit home runs with this business. And I was like, great. This is like, I really appreciate your commitment to this. Two days later, she calls me and she's like, my son is sick. I'm out. Like, uh, forget it. I'm not making any more deodorant. And I was like, are you kidding me? We had a conversation 48 hours ago and you were in. 48 hours later, you're out. And so that was really jarring. And I'm like, okay, you know what? We're selling 500 units of deodorant a week, which is, you know, a few grand in revenue. And it appears to be working well, but like, it's a few grand in revenue. You're out. How do I replace you? I don't really want to be making these deodorants in my apartment. Like at some point, Will Solomon doesn't have, he doesn't even have pots. We're not going to be able to make this over here. And so I'm like, okay, maybe this business is over. And then I'm like, uh, then I go on vacation with a girl that I was dating at the time. We go to like the Dominican Republic or something. We get back. I'm a little bit more like patient now. Uh, I call the manufacturer and I'm like, okay, look, how about you make 500 units a week for the next four months? And then afterwards, I'll pay you like a few thousand dollars bonus. I think it was like a five grand bonus. I'm not entirely positive. I was like, I think I'll pay you a five grand bonus. And and then I'll find another. I'm committed to finding another manufacturer in that period of time. And, you know, she's like, okay, that sounds fair and reasonable. And so let's do it. And so she starts, you know, making the 500 a week again. And in the meantime, I'm like Googling and I'm like, who makes deodorants? Like, I've got a formula I want to make. Who can I get to make this? All right. Quick break in the action to talk about HustleCon. So as you guys know, this podcast, 
podcast is published by The Hustle. They send out a daily email newsletter with the best news of the day, everything you need to know about tech. But that's not all they do. I've been two or three times to HustleCon. It's a conference. It's happening December 2nd and 3rd in Oakland. They rent out the Paramount Theater, which is really an amazing venue. I saw Chris Rock there, Jerry Seinfeld there, and I guess HustleCon is happening there. They have a stacked lineup of speakers. So when I went, founder of WeWork was talking. Let me look at the list for this year. The founder of Hymns, the founder of Madison Reed, Strava, Calm, Method and Ollie, Lime, a bunch of CEOs and founders of multi-billion dollar companies and startups that come on stage and share insights about how they did what they did, how they got started. And HustleCon is very different than a normal conference. Normal conferences are kind of stuffy. You wear, you know, you see a lot of people in suits, like shallow networking going on. HustleCon is very different vibe. You meet a ton of people who are guests in attendance, but also the speakers are very approachable. So they are not only sharing good insights on the stage, but you get to meet them afterwards. And, and that's a really cool experience. So highly recommend coming. In fact, I'm bringing out the editor of this podcast to come because I just think it's a really great opportunity. He's 19, 20 years old. This is an amazing way to sort of get in the mix. If you're thinking about starting an idea, a business, or you are you want to do that someday, or you're doing it right now, either way, listening to speakers tell their stories, being in the audience amongst a bunch of other like-minded people, that is a really, really good way to get amongst it. So that's my genuine recommendation for HustleCon. They gave me a promo code. Let me give this to you guys so that you can get a discount if you do want to get a ticket. The promo code when you check out is MYFIRSTMILLION, all caps, all one word. Again, that's MYFIRSTMILLION. That'll give you 50 bucks off a ticket to HustleCon. And you know what? If you are listening to this and you want to go to HustleCon and you can't afford the tickets, I will buy four tickets for for guests myself and I will send you to HustleCon. You got to figure out your travel to get there, but I'll buy your tickets to the conference itself. Email me puri.sean at gmail.com. I'm happy to give this as a gift to anybody because I think that going to HustleCon, it can really like sort of change the trajectory of your business life. One meaningful relationship or one key insight while you're there, that can make it worth it. That's been my experience with conferences in the past. So, okay, you guys know the deal. HustleCon, December 2nd and 3rd. Try to get there if you can. I called some guys up. Like There was a guy in Chicago. I'll never forget. I called him up. He gave, It was like an hour-long conversation, and I probably said five words. He talked the entire time, and he's like, yeah, so we'll make your deodorant. I'm like, you don't know anything about my needs, and you spoke for 59 minutes and 55 <laughs> seconds, so like, I don't think you're the right guy for me. Red flag. Yeah, terrible red flag. <laughs> Finally, we find a contract manufacturer that's like, yeah, we have a low minimum order quantity, a low MOQ. I think their MOQ is 80. And so I was like, great, we can, we get, we want more than 80. I'm not going to like, uh, you know, bankrupt the business or I I don't have to mortgage my house based on this. And so she starts making 500 a week for us in this tiny, like 800 square foot manufacturing facility in the United States. And, uh, things start going well. And so like, you know, we launched like, you know, in July, 2015, we were doing a couple hundred dollars in revenue a month by January, 2016, we're probably doing around, uh, 75k in revenue a month and things are starting to scale well wow then like you know the first uh, the beginning of the summer hits in 2016 in may 2016 and somehow all of our deodorants start melting i go to our shipping facility which is located in san leandro it's like these two guys called fulfillco nicest guys in the world you know i call them all the time we like you know they're a small business i'm a small business easy to talk to the owners i go over there they're like you know it's probably an hour drive i rent a zip car and i go over there and i'm just looking at our deodorants and i put my finger in one of the deodorants because it like looks weird and it turns out it's got the consistency of lotion you can just put your finger all the way down to the bottom and i'm like holy shit and you have like how many how many units are are we talking here you know we probably have a couple thousand units which is a (laughs) lot of money at the time because that's like uh you know we're not we're not doing a ton of sales that's a lot of lotion 
It's a lot of lotion. Yeah, it's no deodorant and a lot of lotion. And so our manufacturer at the time, like she didn't like the woman who ran it didn't fly. So she was randomly had driven up to San Francisco to have a meeting with me like the day beforehand. And so like all of this is just like works out randomly. So like I call her up and I'm like, hey, are you still in San Francisco? I want to have another meeting because I think there's a problem with the deodorants you just shipped me. And she's like, yeah, I'll come by your office later this afternoon. She comes by and I'm like, here, I brought a few of the deodorants. And she's like, holy shit, what happened to these? Like, you know, she sees it immediately. She calls up her facility and she's like, stop making deodorants. We've got a problem here. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe this business is over again. Like, you know, we, we moved to a new manufacturer. Like, what are we going to do here? And are you, know, you the type to get down on it? Uh, what's the, like, when stuff like this goes yeah. horribly, awfully wrong? Yeah. Are you, some people go inwards, they get very quiet. Some people get angry. Some people get sad. Yeah. What's your reaction? I'm like all three of those. <laughs> Anger is the number one thing for sure. Like I, I'm fuming. But at the, I think for like the first hour, I'm just like, forget it. Uh, this isn't worth it. And I think oh, every time I have a major problem like that for the first hour, I'm less like, this isn't worth my time anymore. I, I'm quitting. Right. Divorce then, right away. Yeah, exactly. Divorce right away. And then like hour two comes along and you start getting like determined and you like, you know, grit your teeth and you're like, wait. I, I, I'm better than this. I'm going to fix this problem. I've got something that's working for me. This is not going to stand in my way. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to fix this problem. So like hour one, I'm like, forget this business. Hour two, I'm like, nothing can stop this business. We are going to, we are going to succeed. Um, <laughs> You're like, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bring it on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm like problem. Don't worry about it. You've got the best problem solved in the world right here. And so, you know, uh, like what, what had been happening is that over the course of the last eight months since this, or like last four months since this woman had been making deodorant for me, like we'd gotten a lot of customer feedback basically saying our formula was kind of mediocre. There were a lot of problems that we were trying to solve for. People were like, look, uh, it does a great job at absorbing wetness and blocking odor, but it's really flaky. It's hard to apply. Men in particular were like, look, uh, I've got hair under my arms. I, like this pulls the hair under my arms out and they're <laughs> sticking to the deodorant. And so for a while, we've been attempting to make a better deodorant, like a better formula. And I'd been sending out samples to people and saying, like, you know, our best customers who were like communicating with me. And I'd be like, hey, what do you think of this formula? Is it any better than like, you know, the formula that you actually paid for? And a lot of people, like, you know, we had said, we had done hundreds of these formulas. I, I was at home. I would rub the formulas on T-shirts, throw them in the washer, or the dryer and see if they stain shirts. And like, you know, I, I have a thousand of these stained shirts. <laughs> Solomon's like, you're running the washer and dryer every day. What's going on over here? <laughs> And you're not a scientist or biochemist, or so, so how are you even figuring out the formula, right? Like, whenever I listen to a guest tell these stories, I think to myself, could I do this business? And when uh, I think there's a lot of things that are relatable, right? Because you started this with essentially no, you didn't have to be a programmer, right? You yeah, that's right. An e-commerce site, that's great. You didn't make the stuff yourself. You found a manufacturer just by Googling who the heck makes deodorant. Yeah, that's right. But then when it comes to like figuring out the right formula to prevent flakiness, that's one where I'd be like, well, I don't even know what's, I don't, I don't know what to do there. So how are you figuring this out? Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, I remember starting the business. I told one of my friends from law school I'm starting this business, and her husband was like, what the hell do you know about deodorant? Like, you know nothing. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And in the next six months, I will be an expert on deodorant. <laughs> and really what happens is, like, you email all of these customers. Uh, like, you know, the customers are like, hey, here's the problem. Customers will even like do diagnoses and they're like, hey, I think it's because of this. And I'm like, oh, wow, great. Thank you for like doing the like the science that I was supposed to do. But in reality, here it was a little easier because like one, working with our contract manufacturer, they did have a chemist. And two, it was easy to diagnose the problem because with deodorants, you want to balance the, uh, the amount of powder and the amount of oils you have in that deodorant uh -huh. to make a product that like absorbs wetness, blocks odor, but still glides on really easily. And so like, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we'd make a bad batch of our deodorant and we'd be like, oh, 
oh, how did this batch turn out? Because like, you know, oh, we forgot to add this amount of oils. And so we start pouring, like, you know, we take a look at it and we're like, oh, this is what we forgot to add oils and it's way, pow- like way more flaky. So and you're so, like, you know what? It's the oils that make it glide well. How frequently were you going to the actual manufacturer? And also, it sounds like it really paid off that you weren't just using a Chinese manufacturer that's hard to speak with, hard to work with, and doesn't guarantee quality. Definitely. Uh, so one, we've never used a Chinese manufacturer. All of our deodorants are made in the United States uh, for two reasons. One, you're right. It allows us to have a really flexible supply chain. Two, it allows us to have like faster demand creation. So like you know, when we, we give them a purchase order, they're able to make it much faster. And three, I would be scared as hell using Chinese deodorant. <laughs> like That is something I don't want to do. I don't know what quality control looks like over there. Right. And it may look great the day I go over there and terrible the next day. Yeah. And we didn't want it. We didn't want any of that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Like the whole point here was we want to avoid the doves of the world. And in order to avoid dove de- to dove antiperspirant, make it in the United States with ingredients, you know, like, you know, where they're being sourced from and you know what they are. Right. Okay. And we're going to jump back into the story, but one more tactical piece. When you, when I build, I build products that are like software. Sure. And with software, it's pretty easy to iterate. It's pretty easy to try, you know, a B test. We can send one one visitor of our of our app to see one experience, and the other visitor to see another experience. It's very easy to do that sort of thing. How can you talk tactically about how you iterate with a physical product? Like sure, uh, I'll, t- I'll talk tactically about how we did it at the beginning first, and then how we do it today. Right. In the beginning, what we do is we send out samples to our best customers who would like were vocal and be like, "Hey, I love your deodorant. I'm going to be a customer, but I wish it did this." And we'd say, "Hey, we're trying to solve your issues. Here are two. Like I, I remember we were doing this. I was like, "This is." Version seven of the deodorant we produced, and this is version eight of the deodorant we produced. They're blo- like you know you don't know what's in them. We're giving you free samples. Compare it to the one that you purchased from us, and tell us what you like more. And like that's the type of feedback that we would do early on. And that's unusual, right? Like I've bottled deodorant my whole life. I've never had anyone from the deodorant company ever reach out to me. I've yeah. never spoke to them. They never sent me different variations. So this must have been kind of unusual for people, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I, I mean, like, the way I think about it is if you In a buy good way. Yeah, if you buy deodorant from like Target and you like, you know, you you buy an Axe deodorant from Target, you're never going to contact the manufacturer. If you buy it directly from us, we were following up with every customer. Like, you know, if you purchase from us with 20 days after you purchase from us, I sent an email to every single customer saying, "Hey, how do you like this deodorant? Do you like it? Do you hate it? If you like it, leave a review on our website. We'd really appreciate it. And if you hate it, please reply back to this email. There's a human being on this side of the table, and we want to make this product better. And so that's how we got feedback from consumers. And today, what we'll do is we'll actually run those A-B tests along huge swaths of the population. So we'll send, you know, the Sean's of one world, baking soda that's milled to a certain particle size, and Sam's of the world, a baking soda that's milled to another particle size. And we'll, we'll monitor your reviews six weeks after you purchase and your repeat purchase rates 12 weeks after you purchase and say, you know what? The Sam's of the world are buying again more frequently than the Sean's of the world. And as a result, it must be that the, the formula that we sent to the Sam's of the world are better. And wow. that's how we can monitor what is the best baking soda particle mill size that we should have. That's kind of amazing. Is that standard? Because I've never heard... It's definitely not standard because like, we have this direct relationship with consumers that allows us to monitor repeat purchase rates and have a direct line of communication with them. It's been really phenomenal for us because things like baking soda particle size are unique and you have no idea what's better. Like, you know, in a laboratory versus in a consumer setting, you're going to have very different right. results. And, and so that's how we A-B test formula changes today. That's amazing. So you guys are sending different versions of, of native deodorant formulas to batches of people, cohorts of people. And then you're able to see these guys repeat purchase rate at 28% versus this one at 21%. Therefore, we believe this formula is better. That's exactly right. Yeah. But we're doing like tiny changes, like, you know, like changes that wouldn't even influence the ingredient deck. We're like, hey, look, do you think we should put in, you know, 
one uh, percent of this ingredient or one point zero five percent of this ingredient <laughs> okay, gotcha. to see what's better. Like you're like nerdy deodorant stuff. Yeah, exactly. We're getting into yeah, about. we're getting into the weeds as much as possible. Right. Okay. All right. So we're gonna hop back in. So re- rewind to that part of the story where deodorant lotion. Oh my God, we gotta fix this. And you guys are you're starting to troubleshoot. So this is sort of like near-death experience number two in Definitely. business. Take it from there. Uh, so, so we talked to our manufacturer and we're like, look, let's first, we're not setting out any more of these deodorants that are lotion. We're either going to refund the customers and close the business or do something. And so what happened is we had been working on a different uh, deodorant formula to fix poor consistency. And so we're like, look, we think we have good feedback on here. We don't have as much feedback as we would have liked. You know, we still had a bunch of samples that we'd sent to customers and hadn't followed up with them yet. And so we're like, look, push, push is coming to shove. We're either going to close this business or switch formulas. Let's switch formulas and see what happens. So we switch formulas basically because we have to. We think it's supposed to be better. And we start shipping that out. We email all the customers and we're like, hey, look, your product was supposed to ship out today. We had a problem. It's now going to take two weeks to ship out. Customers are ups- irate, just absolutely <laughs> irate. And I don't blame them. Like, you know, deodorant's not something you can r- really go without. Right. Like, you know, it's like toothpaste. <laughs> I, I, I need this. Um, so I'm going to go get another product. They're irate, um, but a lot of them are really kind. And they're like, hey, we appreciate the, you know, the honesty. We're, we're willing to be patient for it. Two weeks later, we start shipping it out. This is May 2016. Uh, we're probably doing around 100K in revenue at this point. And immediately we see uh, reviews go up. Uh, like the, the quality of our reviews has gone up significantly. Um, you know, six weeks later, we'll start seeing repeat purchase rates uh, go up as well. Like we can monitor the cohorts, and early on, we get a really good indicator that repeat purchase rates are going to be substantially better with the new version of our formula as compared to the old version. And so we're like, you know what? Maybe this, like, you know, this terrible experience has led to something really good, a much better formula. And, and then, like, you know, May 2016, we're doing 100K in revenue a month. And I'm still the only employee at the company. Yeah, I was going to say, how many people are there? So you're saying we, but we as yeah, me in this just case. me, just <laughs> yeah. me, we're doing 100K in revenue a month or uh, something like that. Just me at the company. I'm doing like customer service, have a really good idea of what the problems are at the company, doing the operations. So I'm talking to the manufacturer all the time, doing Facebook ads to understand like product market fit. So, so let's talk money for a second. This podcast is called My First Million. Yeah. It's called My First Million because since, you know, when I was growing up, I wanted to have a million bucks. Yeah. Um, who doesn't? Who doesn't? Exactly. Uh, I was not, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of people that cool thing to do is say, I'm here to change the world. I'm down with changing the world for sure. But let's be clear. If I'm starting a business, I'm trying to make money. And, Definitely. Um, I'm not afraid to say that. And so my whole startup career was around how do I build a business that makes money for me, for my investors, for my employees. And in order to do so, we're going to have to make an amazing product that customers love. Otherwise, why would they give us their money? And so I like to think I like to give, give my listeners an understanding because a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast right now, they're commuting to work. They work at a nine to five job. They have aspirations of either leaving that job and going and starting a startup or they're doing a startup. and It's not quite taking off. You know, they hear you say we're only at 100,000 a month in revenue and they're like, oh, my God, I wish I could get to 100,000 a month in revenue. So let's talk money for a second. Before you started the business. What was it, you know, were you already doing well financially? Uh, were, you, were you comfortable? Where were you at before? Uh, let's start with that question. Sure. I was an attorney in New York for a couple of years. And during that time, I basically paid off my law school student loans. One of my law school classmates and I left our jobs, you know, back in 2012 to start an e-commerce business. We sold that business for a seven-figure sum. And like, we hadn't raised any money. So I would say I was comfortable, certainly. Yep. But like, you know, wasn't a, you know, wasn't going to be able to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to retire for 
the rest of my life. I, I was in a position where I was like, okay, I bought myself a couple of years of not having to worry about rent and not worry after having to worry about you know food or vacations. But I haven't bought myself you know fifty years of not having to work. Right. And so now you get to this hundred thousand a month of revenue. Yeah. And it's taken the business about how long at this point? It's taken about uh, 11, 10, 11 months. 10, 11 months. Great. And what does that mean for a deodorant business? So you you, you know you make a hundred thousand, but margin wise, what were you do? You know what were you able to take home at the end of that? Sure. Uh, were you break even? Were you yeah. better than that? How were you doing at yeah. that time? Yeah. Um, so we were selling a hundred thousand dollars of deodorant a month. You know the deodorant was costing us a lot of money at the time because we didn't really have any economies of scale. I was the only employee and I wasn't taking a salary. But I'd say on a hundred thousand dollars in business, I'm guessing because I don't really remember. I'd say the company probably made about eight thousand dollars in net profit. Right. Uh, selling a hundred thousand dollars of deodorant. And you and your brother are very business savvy. You've invested in, I don't know, 80 plus businesses. Yeah, something like that. Something something like that. You've started multiple businesses. So what was your mindset around this? Did you think, man, this is going to be a big business? Were you like, this is just kind of a fun project? I guess, how were you thinking about it when it was at that stage? Because 100K a month is good revenue, but you're only taking home 8K maybe. It's not clear at that time. And there's not a whole bunch of other examples you could go look at at other big different businesses that were startups. So how did you think about this business? Definitely. I, I think the first like four months of the business, I was like, look, let's see if let's launch this business. I'm bored. I, I, I don't have a job. Let's see what happens when I launch the business. Pretty early on, I thought that there could be product market fit. And I was like, you know what? We're seeing good return on investment when we uh, buy ads on Facebook, not necessarily on Google at the time. And even on Pinterest, we're seeing a good return on investment. The problems that we have are we have a low repeat purchase rate, a good product, but kind of mediocre and like um you know a decent review uh, average something like four stars right and so i was like look if we can improve our product we really have something i saw product market fit with the product but i also saw that there was a larger opportunity if we could just make our product better and why not hire people? I think a lot of people like to rush to hire people. I'm anti-hiring yeah. people. I, I want to maximize the sort of earnings per capita in my company. Yeah, definitely. And like, how did you resist that? What was your thought process around that? Because you're doing it as a one-man show. Sure. One, we like you know in Silicon Valley, a bunch of people raise money. We also raise money. To be clear, we raised about fifty thousand dollars in November of 2015. So like a few months after we started, and then another two hundred fifty thousand dollars in about April of 2016. And this was friends and family or this was these were both outside investors that i just met like you know i had uh somebody introduced me to them and both of them invested and you know so we had about three hundred thousand dollars in the bank account plus the thousand dollars i kicked in so probably about three thousand <laughs> three hundred one thousand dollars <laughs> and so we're like you know we've got some cash but not a ton of cash uh i i didn't hire anyone for a couple of reasons one was super busy trying to run the business like if you're doing marketing operations and customer service that's a full-time job on saturdays i would spend the entire day basically i'd go to a workshop cafe and crank out a bunch of customer service like inquiries so people got responded to within 24 hours so one was really busy and then two i was afraid that the business was wasn't going to survive much longer i didn't want to hire someone and then fire that person three months later because the business was collapsing and four i wasn't sure i could afford them sure we had three hundred thousand dollars in the bank account but we had eight thousand dollars in net profit if i hire someone between employment taxes their salary and benefits we're certainly giving up that eight thousand dollars and so I was like, I don't know how long we're going to be able to afford this person. The future of the business doesn't have a, like we don't have a ton of profit right now. So I don't know how long I'll be able to afford you. And what was your schedule like? So you're saying Saturday Saturdays is customer service day. How yeah. do you, when you are the one doing operations, marketing and customer service, 
plus everything else that goes into all the little things that go into a business. How are you organizing your time and your day? Are you like a, I work 18 hours a day kind of guy or tell us about like kind of your schedule. Yeah. I was like, I was waking up and going to work. Yeah. I mean, I'd work until uh, like, you know, seven, 8 PM early on in the business, probably the first four or five months I was doing all the packaging as well, the shipping as well out of my apartment. (laughs) And so like I'd go home at 7 PM, turn on Netflix. And while I was watching Netflix, I'd be packing boxes and shipping them out. Right. And um, so you so were, you were Michael Scott, you were Dwight on sale. That's right. You were, yeah. You were Daryl in the warehouse. That's right. Yeah. You were the whole office. Yeah. Yeah. And Toby being like, you know, this is a terrible company. <laughs> so long days at the beginning, we get to June, we've got a higher repeat, per- like, you know, we've got, oh, we've got a higher repeat purchase rate, better reviews, you know, in June of 2016. So about 11 months into the business, we hire our first employee and she's uh, helping doing customer service. And I'm like, great, this is, I, I need so much help here because like customer service is endless and I I can't like reply like, you know, it's just taking up so much of my time. So she comes on board. We do 250K in revenue that month. So we basically doubled the business between May and June. And the customer service inquiries have gotten to be even more than she can, she and I can handle together. I thought I was done with customer service. We doubled the business. And it turns out she and I are both doing customer service <laughs> all day. So we hired a third customer service. We hired another person, a third, uh, the third person to join the team. And he's doing customer service. And uh, I was like, great. This is wonderful. Now I can really stop doing it. And by like, you know, by November 2016, we're doing a million dollars a month. So we go from 100K in like May to a million in November. And now we've got a bunch of customer service people, including me, uh, you know, just crazy customer service. <laughs> like we have these things called power hours where we're like everybody does customer service. And it's not entirely their fault. Like a lot of it was we were not able to keep up in terms of production with the demand that we had because we didn't expect to 10x the business over the course of five months. And so our manufacturers running behind. If you buy the deodorant on a Wednesday, it probably gets made Friday and shipped to you, you know, the, the following Wednesday. <laughs> um, we're doing like, we don't know what's going on. The business is growing really quickly, but we can't keep up with it. And, and I certainly can't. Like I, I'm like, well, I have to do customer service. I I have to make sure that we're, I'm trying to produce more deodorant. I'm trying to run our advertising. And, you know, I, I have no idea what our business will look like a year from now. So, so what caused the business to grow from that 100K a month to a million a month? Yeah. Uh, that's a huge jump. Was it just spending more on ads? Did you guys... Obviously, the formula is getting better, so obviously the product is getting better. But is it just is it just like that? It's a million little things getting better, or was there a breakthrough or a point of emphasis that really was high level? There's three things. One, word of mouth is growing a ton. Like you know, it's it's small. It's hard to have word of mouth when you're doing 50k a month. It's a lot easier to have word of mouth when you're doing 250k, 500 a month. So that's growing a ton. Two, we're spending more on ads because we understand product market fit and we understand that we're profitable when we spend money on ads. So we're spending more money on ads. And then three, we have a higher repeat purchase rate, uh, which was the most important thing. So it's like compounding. This, yeah, exactly. This is a huge snowball effect. I remember in like, so in January 2017, we're doing just over a million dollars a month. And I was like, by December of 2017, I want to do a million dollars in repeat purchase revenue a month. And we hit that million dollars in like March. So it sounds like focusing on repeat purchase was a key insight that obviously if you're in D2C businesses, that's that's kind of known as a good standard. But if you're new, you know that's something to hone in on. How did you know that at the start? Did a mentor tell you, "Hey, repeat purchase rate is the thing to, to key in on"? I, I think for like uh, it depends on the product you're in. If I was selling Casper mattresses, I would be 
concerned about new customer acquisition because how many mattresses is someone going to buy? Yeah. Uh, you know what? I bet Casper is doing a really good job with re- repeat purchase rate. But like when you're selling a consumable by like deodorant, the whole point is that people are brand loyal. And once they find a deodorant, they're going to stick with it for a really long time. I used Axe deodorant from like, you know, probably 12 years old till I was 30 years old, right. like 18 years. <laughs> and so for me, I was like, look, we have to find like if we're producing a deodorant, we need to make sure that people love it and they don't just churn and go back to their doves or degrees of the world. And uh, why were you able to charge $12 for deodorant? Is it still $12, by the way? It's still $12. And, and um, it's $12 deodorant? at Walmart, $12 at Target, and $12 at our own site. And, and I really, the way, the way we did it is I worked backwards. Like early on, the uh, deodorant cost us about $6 to make. It cost us uh, $3 and some change to ship. And then it cost us like another $1.50 for random expenses, like the box and like a, a, you know, a card in there and a bunch of other expenses. So we were looking at an all-in cost of uh, like $11 and some change. And so I was like, look, uh, I can't lose money on every deodorant I make. I'm not brandless, so I have to charge $12. Otherwise, we're going to lose money on every single order. And so that's really where it came from. And a normal deodorant, you know, Axe or Old Spice or whatever, they're not, I mean, what's the, I almost don't even think about it. I just pick it up off the shelf. Typically, it's yeah. three bucks. Like, yeah. What is it? Three normal? to $4 is like a, a traditional price anti like a traditional price anti So when you were going into this, weren't, yeah. you know, if I was your friend yeah. at that time, I would have been like, hey, but. You sure you're going to be able to 4x the price of deodorant? Like, are we sure that's a good idea? Yeah, um, I, I guess really what happened is by the time people started asking that question, I was, like, it. I was like, we're doing a million dollars a month, so I think I think we're okay. Okay, but I do remember like we had this one question from an investor. At some point, we tried to raise more money, and you know the investor was like, the entire natural deodorant industry is something like thirty million dollars a year. So why would anyone be interested in investing in a category that only has thirty million dollar a year run rates? And I was like. Like if the natural deodorant industry is $30 million a year, we're the entire natural deodorant industry. <laughs> we're doing $30 million a year at this point. And so I think from, from our perspective, we were like, look, there's a lot of external factors that say we should not be doing this. Yeah, $12 deodorant is really expensive. The entire natural deodorant industry when we launched was Tom's of Maine, which was $30 million. And we're just like, I think this is a product that people want and need. And like, you know, th- let them tell us that we're doing something wrong and, and we'll try this anyway. And that's how it worked out. Like, you know, by the time people were telling us it's a $30 million total addressable market, we were doing that much revenue. <laughs> and so you, you've said the phrase customer service a bunch yeah people are playing the drinking game at home taking a shot every time you say customer service they're dead Um, (laughs) and so a lot of people like you know we just got acquired by amazon amazon has this phrase you know customer obsessed is what jeff bezos says a lot of people say that but i think you guys are doing something specifically that your actions back up your words i saw some little things like you know you know first the stories you told about reaching out to customers yeah. 20 days later, saying, what could we be doing better, sending them different formulas to try out, working with them. But also, right when you sign up, you get a funny email from you guys. Like, Talk about some of the things you guys have done on the customer service or customer obsessed side. Sure. Uh, I guess like one of the, the goals or one of the values we really have is to try and build a human business. Like, We want you to know that when you communicate with us, there's a human being on this side of the business, and it's not some corporate entity, and you're not going to like get one of those uh, you know Comcast-like responses where people are like, I don't care about this let me transfer you to some other customer service representative and like they'll deal with it and they'll transfer when you contact us you a real human being who sits in our office responds and then we try and build a really human element in a few ways uh one is when you order from us we send you this over-the-top order confirmation email and or over-the-top shipping confirmation email when you order from us we say hey we're popping bottles of champagne and this is fantastic um (laughs) and when you when we ship the 
border, we say, hey, look, um, we're re- writing your name over the Golden Gate Bridge. We're putting a sign in, in our parking lot that says world's best customer with your name and photo on it. And, and it's really over the top to, to meant to be playful. And to uh, so, so you know that the brand that you're purchasing from sort of subscribes to your values as well, which is we don't take this too seriously, but at the same time, um, we're really we take it very seriously. Customer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like this is deodorant. And so like we know that this isn't like product that you're going to is going to make a huge impact in your life. This isn't like having a kid, but at the same time, it's important that you use a deodorant that works and you, you know, you're buying from a brand that really resonates with you. So you've hit the scale that really matters now. You're doing a million dollars a month. Yeah. At this point, you know, any non-believer at this point has to sort of be thinking, okay, there's something real here. And the company size at this time was still pretty small, right? How many people were at Native at this time? There's probably about five employees. Wow. And, and so you're, you're, you've got this business on your hands, and you ultimately decided to, to sell. What was the thinking around that? Why, why decide to sell when things are sort of, when the going is good? And I'm going to ask you how you sold it, because as I've learned, selling a company is both art and science, and I'm curious to hear how it all went down. But why, why decide to sell in the first place? Well, what happened is that like somebody came knocking on our door in about February of 2017, indicating that they wanted to purchase the business. And we're like, look, I, I never heard of them. And I'm like, hey, you know, we're growing. I don't know who you are. I think this is a, like, you know, this isn't serious. And it turned out that they were like, you know, this was a privately held company doing a billion dollars in revenue. And it was very serious. And so that really kickstarted the process. They started knocking on the door and like the knock became loud enough that we couldn't ignore it any longer. And that's when the process got kicked off. It turned out that they were a lot less serious than I anticipated. Like <laughs> I went out to meet with them and, you know, they're like, okay, great. Send us all of your, you know, financials and your information. I sent it out in like June of 2017. They don't even reply back for like 90 days afterward. Like they're just radio silent. I follow up with them. And I'm like, hey, is this still going on? If it's not, no problem. Just give me a heads up because, you know, at this point, uh, you know, we've started a process and we're talking to a bunch of other parties. I mean, I don't say all that. I just say, if you're not interested anymore, no problem. Just let me know. But just radio silence, like being ghosted from an ex or from like a, you know, a Tinder date is what's happening. To and me. were they, you think they were just picking your brains to get the, the numbers from you? And then they were like, great, thank you very much. Or what, or were they just bureaucratic internally? I think they were just like, I, I think there was like a little bit of a brain drain going on. And I think that it was also just like, uh, you know, they have their own business, and they're like, you know what? Maybe this is too small. We're a billion dollar business. Uh, maybe the oh, you know, the right person internally was like, we don't really care about this business. I think it was a bunch of factors. But at some point, like you know, we started going our own way, and we're like, okay, because you knocked on the door so loud, we started our own process, and we've got all these other suitors. They ended up coming back, like you know, a, a few months before we sold the business, or like a month before we sold the business, and they're like, okay, yeah, we're interested again. And I was like, no, uh, I'm not going through this again. We're really far along in the process with a bunch of other guys and you guys don't have the credibility to continue doing this right and so you're you're selling the business do you feel like you know how to do this process definitely not um (laughs) this is like you know look there are so many different emotions that happen all the time when you're trying to sell a business i was really thankful that like you know my brother was there with me he had just sold his business he had hired a banker and sort of gone through the transaction and knew what to expect so we start this process ourselves you know we create a one-page document that's like a teaser we send it out to a bunch of potential acquirers it doesn't even have our name on it. They say, yes, are you interested? Or oh, like, They're like, yeah, we're interested in this business. They're like, no, we don't care about the deodorant category. Uh, get out of here. The guys who are interested sign an NDA and we send them a book that's like, you know, probably 120 pages long 
telling them all the information about our business. This is what our financials look like. This is how many people we have. This is where our business is and growing. The banker put that together, or you put that together? Uh, the banker, uh, the banker, and uh, right. and our team uh, put that together. So a bunch of people have this book, and then uh, what happens is that they indica- they send us letters of interest where they're basically like, "Yeah, we are interested in this business." If they are, if they're not, they just go away. Um, but if they are interested in the business, having looked at our financials, they say we're interested in this business. We think that we would purchase this business between you know ten million and twenty million dollars or something to that effect and then what you do is you say you know what these are the biz- these are the guys who I think are really serious about this like if some guy's offering you 10 to 20 million dollars and you're doing 40 million in revenue probably don't right. not worth a conversation <laughs> So, you know, we take a bunch of these, and I think there's 12 suitors at the time, maybe 14. And so we say, okay, everyone come to our office in San Francisco and have a conversation with Moyes. And so I'm so This stand- is like The Bachelor. You're, you're sitting this there is with, the the, with the roses, and you're, you invite them all to the party. Yeah, I'm not sure if they have the roses or I have the roses. <laughs> I still don't know. But yeah, we invite them all to the party. And they're here, and they're like, you know, I, I, I talk to them, uh, and like, you know, businesses send out, like, some businesses will send out one guy who's like the head of the North America, and P&G will send out, like, we, you know, we, we were sitting in my brother's, we were squatting in my brother's office. He has a large conference room that can probably seat like 18 people. P&G sends like 25 people, and I'm just like, there's this is standing room only here. We didn't expect this. And don't expect me to pick up the tab for lunch. Here. Right. And so, so we go through this process with a bunch of these guys, and then what we say is like, look, here's all, look, if you're still interested in this business, here's all of the data. That, here's all the diligence that you need in the business. Here's all of our contracts. Now we're a two and a half year old business. We barely have any contracts. Right. You know, we have probably three material contracts. No change of control provisions. Like the whole like there, there's very little data in the data room. Yeah. And we say go through all the data. Here's a draft merger agreement. Mark it up. Give us an offer, and you should be ready to sign that. You should be ready to close that offer the day you give it to us. And you know, look, that's really aggressive. Incredibly aggressive. We're basically like, look, we. We've got we've got this awesome business. You want it? There's a bunch of you guys. There's one of us. Right. Twelve of really those aggressive. guys in that room are paid to like do a ninety day diligence process. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, what am I doing here? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. I'm out of right. a job here. And so we're super aggressive about it. During that process, a couple of the guys drop off for one reason or the other. A couple of guys realize, hey, look, we're not going to be aggressive enough. Like we think there are going to be better strategic fits for this business, and it's not worth our time to put in an offer. A couple of guys just get scared at the price. You know, I remember one. One potential acquirer was looking at one of our competitors and they're like, your competitor is selling for $5 a target. How are you like, at the, and at this point, the entire business is online. You know, we sell deodorant and only deodorant. We sell it only through our own website and we sell it only in the United States. And so one of the things that we sell is like the sizzle, right? We're yeah. like, look, if you, uh, you know how to sell in, you know, P&G, do you know how to sell into Target? If so, imagine how native would do a Target. Right. Do you know how to make other products with the word native on them? Help us do that and we can make this a bigger business. Do you know how to sell in Canada? Great. This is going to be a bigger business. So we gotcha. sell that sizzle. That's strong. I like yeah, that. that is really strong. And so like a couple guys are like, you know what? Your competitors are selling for $5 a Target. You're not going to be able to sell next to those guys so we're out or we drop our uh, price by half and then push comes to shove and P&G hasn't done a deal in like 10 years this is the first acquisition they're making in 10 years so our banker is like look I have no idea how these guys operate like I know how you know Unilever operates and I know how these private equity firms operate but P&G nobody's seen them in the world in 10 years yeah they so got I, a pop of Viagra just to do a deal like this yeah exactly they're not I, used to this yeah exactly <laughs> I, like I don't even know how to like get a reference on P&G to see if they're serious because no one has seen them in the market. 
And, and at this point, had you put out a price yourself of like this is our target? No, or you're letting no, everybody. Come We're up letting with everyone price? come in with bids. And did you? Uh, what did you internally? What did you internally think about this? You know, you, are you dreaming about a certain number? How are you internally thinking about the price? Great question. I, I'm not sure. Like you know, there are po- there are times where I'm like, okay, like the month a month closes, and I'm just like, we generated you know four million in revenue this this month. Add another zero to that <laughs> price, buddy. Yeah. Add two more zeros. <laughs> And then there'll be like one bad day where I'm like, you know what? Uh, we had this like hiccup because of operations and like, you know, something happened. And, and now I'm like, take okay, I'll take hands. anything. Yeah, take yeah. it off my hands. Somebody come in and give me anything. <laughs> and like, you know, it, it's like a roller coaster and the roller coaster isn't even week to week. It's hour to hour. And like, you know, during diligence, people are asking for random. There was one company that asked for every email that we had ever sent out a copy of it, <laughs> the open rate, the click-through rate, and the revenue generated from that email. And I'm like, look, at this point, we have a million customers. We send out millions of emails a month, and you want this from the beginning of the time that we launched the business? And they're like, yeah, that's just to make the first board meeting really uh, productive. And I was like, the board is going to go through emails? <laughs> because even I, I barely, like, I, I mean, I look at that, but I don't look at that on like a quarterly basis. And so, you know, they're just like, uh, so, so you're up at 2 a.m. preparing these things for them. And there's like a bunch of these acquirers, so there's a bunch of them. Some guy, like the the guys who were most interested in the business, ended up dropping out in the uh, during the uh, during the acquisition conversations. And I was like, I don't know why you did that. And so you know, all of these things are happening, and you're just, it's like a roller coaster. The, the thought, the company that you thought was going to marry you, like gets up to the altar, and they're like, we're out of here. Right. And you're just like, oh my god, who's going to marry me now? <laughs> and I remember uh, when we were going through the process just now, because it's pretty fresh on my mind, just a couple months ago. There are these moments where you're having a conversation. And certain things, it's like they say something and in your head, you're like, this is the moment I need to say something. And whatever I say right now is going to really actually swing the way this whole process is going. And uh, there are these like key moments that are just happening over a coffee or on the phone or whatever. Do you remember any of those kind of conversations or key moments along the way? Yeah. Well, there's two. One was with everyone, which was an issue we had with our trademark. And I'll get to that in a second. And two, I remember one guy who, who was like the CEO of the company was like, you know, trying to judge my marketing ability. And so he's like, if you were, uh, if your brand was represented by a celebrity, who would that person be? Uh, and I was like, I know that uh, like, I was like, this is one of those things where you think either I'm intelligent or I'm an idiot. Uh, and I remember I hadn't even thought of this, but I was like, Michelle Obama. And he's like, OK, you got it right. Wow. He's like, that was a good answer. And I was like, great. Uh, but in reality, we had a trademark issue until we sold the business. This was a serious part like that delayed the transaction with everybody and that I think made it harder for us to sell a business. We simply didn't own our trademark yep. uh, until five days before we sold the business. So we bought our trademark on like, we sold the business on like November 8th. On November 3rd, we purchased the trademark. And that was the one thing that we still had to do in order to sell the business. Like P&G was like, we will not buy this business until you own your own trademark. Right. Which was completely fair of them. And we were like negotiating with the person who owned the mark. Simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. In order to get it done. I feel like... A deal is not close to being done. It's not real until the deal almost falls through. That's like the test. If your deal hasn't right? fallen yeah, yeah. through yet, it's not a real deal. <laughs> like uh, I was talking to so Michael Birch was on this sitting where you're sitting uh, a couple weeks ago, and he sold Bebo to yeah. AOL for 850 million bucks. And I was uh, I didn't ask him this on the podcast, but I've asked him this before. I said, you know, was it smooth? How did it go? And he was like, you know, he was kind of like, you know, I just let the bankers kind of do their thing. It was such a big transaction that there's all these lawyers, all these bankers. It's not pleasant, but we almost got. He's like, we got to the very end and then with Bebo which was a social network they started getting sued by the music companies at the 11th hour oh god and the music companies knew hey these guys are about to sell we have all the leverage in the world right now to just 
just go ahead and sue, and they'll have to pay. They have to settle because they want to close some sure. deal. So, you know, they they go and sue, and I think it's like a fifteen million dollars uh, like settlement is like needed or whatever. So Michael goes to the investors, the VCs, and he's like, "Hey, um, I might have got the numbers wrong, but it's something like." 10, 15 million bucks. He goes to the VCs. He's like, hey, look, to close this deal, we really need to just settle this this issue. And then, you know, we can go sell this company. These guys are not going to go away unless we do this. And they were like, yeah, you know, you're right. You really got to settle with them. And he's like, what? No, we got to settle with sure, them. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 I think you're going to settle with them. And so he ended up at, basically out of his own share, had to like settle with these companies in order to settle the lawsuits to get the deal to close. And of course, he holds it against those VCs like you know, to this day. Definitely. But, but uh, these are the crazy stories that happen at the end of the deal, or, you know, right when you think you, you have it. That, that's really terrible because like, uh, I never felt it wasn't a we with my investors. Like They were all like super happy and super excited about getting the deal done. And you know, if someone had come to me, if one of our investors and been like, uh, I don't love this, and I'm going to try and vote no and fuck this up. <laughs> right. I, I would have like been devastated, right? And like felt like there was a knife in my back, right? So I don't know who those investors yeah, are that might did Michael, <laughs> but he I hope he should mention their name everywhere he goes. <laughs> yeah. So so this is actually that that mindset. Your brother's told me about this. He says he's like, yeah, my brother, boys, you know, he's he's great. He does a great job. He's like, but if you flip the the, the temper switch, he's like. He has this like retribution streak. Yeah, where it's like yes. if you wrong me, I will publicly right the wrong <laughs> for the next fifty years. I'm devoted to it. <laughs> so, so and give I'll, me an example of this. Yeah, sure. I'll give you an example right now. There's this company called. <laughs> uh, they said no to us because I was like, hey, I want to launch this refillable deodorant early on when we were launching the business. And I was like, yeah, we're launching this refillable deodorant. And they're like, no, this is terrible. Get out of here. And like, you know, in the last six months, I don't even remember what, but they invested in a refillable deodorant company. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I see that you're doing a refillable deodorant. Now it's not such a bad idea, huh? You reached out. Back no, I didn't oh, even okay. say anything. <laughs> I was like, uh, th- this like stands by itself. Like, you know, <laughs> you know that you're doing this and I know that you're doing this. Right. But like, you know, d- do what you got to do. But you could have had the opp- you had the opportunity four years ago. I also heard the sort of once you get to Procter and Gamble, obviously they have a sort of much tighter, you know, view of of, of risk tolerance around uh, Twitter and some of some of your tweets. <laughs> How's that been for you since since joining, you know, the mothership? Basically, what happened was <laughs> sent us this letter, and so I tweeted it. And I was like, if you're wondering when I decided to destroy your business, it was when you sent me this letter. <laughs> like before, I was like, you know, you guys are a gnat uh, and I don't care about your tiny business and I'll let you exist. And now it's personal. And I like, you know, my life's mission is to make sure that you regret sending this letter. Every morning you should wake up and you should be like, fuck, I sent that letter and now my life is fucked. <laughs> Someone was called someone at PNG and they're like, you have to take down these tweets. <laughs> and I was like, why should we take down these tweets? We should show how competitive we are. When people come after us, you know, uh, we, we like go after them 10 times harder. You know, like uh, Donald Trump is always like, we're building this wall 10 feet higher. That's basically what I was like. Right. You come after us, we're building this wall 10 feet higher. And where, where did that come from? Where did that strategy or mindset come from? Is it like at an early age, were you doing this with your brother, like competitiveness with him? Or where, where is the. Origin? I think it came from him. I think he just does a better job of like hiding it. it. Yeah, he's just more charismatic than I am. So he says it, and everyone's like, oh, you know what? Poor, you know, Solomon's like funny and like this is good and good humored. And when I say it, people are like, Moise is vicious. <laughs> he's just more charismatic, so it comes off nicer. But he's got it himself for sure. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so company finally does. 
the, the offer does come through. Procter & Gamble was serious. Take it from there. How did it end? How did it feel? And where are you guys at now? Yeah, sure. So one, I, I think one of the issues with these types of companies is always about, like, or w- with a deal is like deal certainty. How comfortable are you that the other guys are going to close or try and do something at the 11th hour? Because, like, you know, if, if you say no to all of these other companies and then your deal doesn't get consummated, you come back and you're like, hey, do you want to do a deal? They're like, what's wrong? Why did the first acquirer not end up buying right. you? I've got the leverage here. Damaged goods. Yeah, exactly. And so um, there was a lot of deal certainty with P&G. Like, they were fantastic partners throughout this all. They were like, you know, they came out to San Francisco. Uh, we met with them. We went to dinner with them. They made the offer. They came back again before the deal signed. And they're like, this is how it's going to be post-acquisition. Like, this is how you're going to report to us. This is how we're thinking about the business. How do you feel about it? And I was like, wow, you guys aren't trying to like hide anything or be at like, you guys are just genuinely nice Midwestern people who are honest and like uh, mean what you say. Right. And so that was, a, that gave me a lot of comfort going into the deal. And that was wonderful. And as soon as we bought the trademark, I basically knew the deal was going to, I mean, there was only five more days, but I knew the deal was going to close. Since then, you know, we've grown the business a ton. We've launched into Target and to Walmart, where like the number one selling natural deodorant in Target, the number one selling natural deodorant in Walmart. Native coconut and vanilla is the best selling uh, deodorant skew at Target over the last 52 weeks. And we haven't even been there for 52 weeks. One one question on this, the sort of what's a it's not flavors. What's the sense? Sense. Yeah. You had these like I saw something like a pumpkin spice latte scent. Like, yeah, definitely. Like, is this like is this just like your marketing genius or what? what is yeah, going it's on here? super fun because basically we're like, look, why are we taking this stuff too seriously? And like you know, you can use a scent for a season, and you don't have to go through the entire deodorant stick before you can get rid of it. In the same way that you're not like if you open up a diet coke because you want to like treat yourself, you don't have to drink the whole thing, right? Or you don't have to have an entire like you know Snickers king size bar. So we're like, look, why don't we launch these really fun scents? They work and they're effective. They're good for PR and hopefully you find out about the deodorant through na- native pumpkin spice latte and then you're like this is a great deodorant I don't want to smell like pumpkin spice latte in April yeah. maybe I should buy the you know coconut and vanilla scent See, this is what I love about businesses and startups is if you're Procter and Gamble you're not afraid of Unilever you should be really afraid of the Moyes at his dining table thinking up pumpkin sized latte f- scents and getting PR and really getting this thing off the ground like it's it's the you know, one or two people in a bedroom Definitely. who are actually the threats to these like giant multi-billion-dollar companies because you have creativity and you have nothing to lose. Yeah, exactly. And you have a fresh perspective. Yeah, and like all the things you've told me so far just fall into those buckets. And if I'm listening to this, I'm taking one thing away: is like, do not be afraid and do do not sort of conform to the sort of practices of the industry. You didn't know anything about deodorant. You went in with basically no money, no staff, no nothing. And you figured it out. And I like, what do you think is the message for, you know, the next you who maybe doesn't have the sort of confidence today? What is your message to that person who's thinking about an idea like this? Yeah, it's really like stop listening to other people and start listening to yourself. I remember when we were growing the business, people were like, look, you're not going to be able to sell this until you launch a second product outside of deodorant that really is a home run again. So people so you can prove this is a a repeatable model. Other people were like, hey, you need to do influencer advertising. This brand is not going to have any legs and no one's going to care without influencer advertising. Other people were like, you need to launch pop-up stores like, you know, the Allbirds and Aways of the world. That's the only way to do this. Other people were like, you haven't fundraised. What are you doing? This isn't a real business until you've got some cap, like, you know, millions of dollars in your balance sheet. 
And I was like, you are all probably right. And I have no, like, you know, I don't have the time for any of this kind of stuff. We have a business that's working. And so like, give your advice to somebody else. Like, I I know what's working at my company. And so I'm going to keep doing that. I I don't want any of this advice. Uh, Like, I I, I appreciate the advice. I'm not going to take any of it. Right. And like, it's really hard to sort of be like, hey, look, these other people that have a lot more money than I do and that have a lot more experience than I do um, are going to give me advice and I'm going to reject it. And I'm like, uh, okay with that. You have to have a lot of like independence and be okay with what's going like okay with like living and dying on your own intelligence and for me like what gave me a lot of confidence was you know things were working early on and so when people were giving me this advice I was like look what's working like what's working for us is working we're going to double down on that instead of doing anything that you suggest right and it's hard like you know for us we had that great safety net of like uh, success already or like momentum and so it's it's if you don't have that Trust your gut. Nobody's going to be able to like come into your business, talk to you for 20 minutes, and give you an amazing idea that you haven't thought of. People would be like, have you thought about influencer advertising? And I'm like, I only live and breathe this business every day, like, uh, you know, from a morning to night. What no. a genius idea. <laughs> Tell me more about this. I was like, yeah, I've thought about that. But we just did a million dollars a month, and we're, we're going to try and do $2 million a month next month. And, and so I'm focused on that and don't really have the time to like contact influencers on Instagram. And so, you know, you just got to trust your gut and like listen to yourself. Other people's advice can help you like, you know, get through the rough patches. And I think our investors did a great job of that. But ultimately, like um, it's up to you and like your like live and die by your own merits. I love it. And what was it like when the deal closed day of money hits the bank? This is my first million. Yeah. People want to know what is it? What changed? What what did it feel like? What did you do? Did you start balling out of control? Like, uh, tell us you started balling out of control a little sure. bit. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, 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 let me tell you the story of one of our investors. I'm telling all of our investors we're selling the business. It's a couple days before we actually close the deal. Uh, our first investor is this Chinese guy named Wei Go. Doesn't speak a ton of English and the nicest guy in the world. I, I text him and I'm like, Hey, I got to chat with you. Do you have Do you have a few moments today? And he's like, Is this urgent? And I was like, Yeah, kind of. I need you to sign documents in like the next twenty four hours. And so he's like, Okay, great call me. So I call him up. I was like, we turned your 50K to a million dollars. And he's like, fuck, this is awesome. You know, every, he's like, all these people in China told me I didn't understand American consumers. I'm going to go back to them and show them this deal. Fuck them. And so, uh, you know, I tell him, uh, you know, I need you to sign these docs in the next 24 hours. He's super excited. At the end of the call, he's like, you know, I, I asked you if this was urgent uh, via text message earlier because my wife just gave birth to my first kid. But this is the best news I've gotten all day. It's so amazing. I'll never forget him saying that. Anyway, we close the deal. You know, money hits the bank. Like, we haven't raised a ton of money at that point. We've raised about $500,000. So have the vast majority, like, you know, 90-some percent of the company is controlled by, by me. And, and like, my family family's in town to help celebrate, which is really fun. We go to this like Thai restaurant for dinner, which is really fun. But like what's shocking is like how little life has changed. Like, you know, I still live in the same apartment. I still have no car. I still rent, you know, like very little of my life has changed despite the the financial windfall. And and, like one of the things I realized afterwards, because, you know, all these people are like, oh, being rich is not that great. And I'm like, no, fuck you. Uh, You just say that because you have money. and You can't appreciate it. You dumb idiot. I'll be able to spend it really well. And then you're like, you know what? Like the journey of like the friendships I made with all the employees that I have and like a bunch of like most of the team is still there. You know, like when we were building Native and we did, you know, before, the month that we sold the business, we did like a million dollars in net profit, which was insane. A million dollars in net profit. And I was like, you know, if a bus hits me on the way to work, I'm still going to get to work because I love this job. <laughs> like there were so many great things that were happening with the business. And it was that journey that was really amazing. And like the thing that I really appreciated. And even today, I mean, I'm 
I'm still I'm still running native on a day to day basis. It's like the people that work there and how devoted they are to the business. That's amazing. Like getting them like seeing a bunch of people sit down and they're like, this is a problem. How are we going to solve this? How do we delight customers? How do we make like, you know, we had this contest internally to make another email funny and very human. And I was like, wow, these people like care, understand the business and want to make the like, you know, this company better. I have no idea how they got that way. I have no idea how they were motivated to do that. And they're that way. And it's really fun to see that. And like that meant so much more than the money. And that's still surprising to this. Like even when I say it today, I'm like, this guy's an idiot. And it's myself saying it. But it did. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I trust you when you say it. Because there's a lot of people that say it that I'm like, okay, you don't have to say the politically correct thing around me. It's cool to just like, hey, money is amazing. Yeah, I do this, this, and this. This changed. But when you're saying it, like, I believe you. I believe what you just said because I think you're wired like me and that you thought it would be X. And it is good. But man, why is a lot actually has made a bigger impact on me. Yeah, it just makes me happier. Yeah. Like being in the team makes me happier. And, and like, you know, now when I go to restaurants, uh, like one of the the best thing is I'm just like, I'll order whatever I want. Right. I don't care if this entree is $14 or $22. I'm like, I don't care. I'm taking the $22 right. one because <laughs> I want shrimp tonight. <laughs> and like, that's definitely something I do. Like, you know, I'll, I, I try and spend a lot more time with my family. So I like will go and fly and visit my family more often because I'm less worried about where the next paycheck is going to come from. And I'm less worried about the cost of airfare. Yeah. So it's not like nothing has changed, but it's not like there's a Lamborghini sitting in my garage or I own a car. It's just like things are like easier when it comes to doing what you want to do. But at the same time, you realize what you want to do is build those businesses. And right. that's like an amazing, amazing high. If you were 21 today, starting from scratch, you, just, you know, you have the intelligence you have today. You have the knowledge about the world you have today, but you didn't have the resources and you have all the you know time and exuberance of a 21 year old. If you were 21 today, what business would you want to go start? What what space would you want to go into? That's a great question. And I think that it can be answered in a bunch of different ways. Like if I had no resources, I would say start drop shipping something. Find something that on Alibaba that you can purchase and sell more in the United States on Amazon or some something else and arbitrage that difference. I've seen so many people do that and so many people do that well. And that's a great way to get your feet wet into e-commerce and understand what's going on without having any personal capital at risk. And if you're more ambitious and you're like, look, I can quit a job, I, I can quit my job and I want to do something, I can tell you for me, I could never start a business until I could never start a new business until I quit my old one. I would say, look, look, e-commerce is amazing. You don't need a developer. Everything is really cheap out of the gate. Um, figure out product market fit. And be obsessed with your consumer and you will find something that works. Like, you know, even if you have to like go through a bunch of products and you're like, you know what? I tried to sell them shampoo or I tried to sell them a toothpaste and that didn't work out. Now I'm trying to sell something like, uh, you know, deodorant. Go for it. Like be obsessed with consumers. And and that like the 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 biggest problem that I think direct to consumer businesses have is that they like the founders disconnect themselves with customer service. Then you're like you know you're just like these CPG giants where you're like I don't have a I don't have a direct line of communication with people who use my product every day. We have that direct line. A thousand people email us every day, and we're like, hey, look, this is what they're thinking today. Um, it gives us incredible insight into what we should be making and how to fix our product. So I think e-commerce is amazing. I would do that again. I love e-commerce. If you don't have any reason resources and don't have any technical knowledge, you can still do e-commerce. The one feedback I'd give after you chose that, if you chose that category is do not disconnect yourself with the consumer. Love it. And if I'm listening to this and I'm like, this guy is awesome. I want to talk to this guy. I want to send him my ideas. I want to send him my, my, my company right now. How should they get in touch with you? And really who should get in touch with you? What's the, who do you want to hear from? 
Sure. Look, if you're in e-commerce and you're like, you know, you've got some legs under you and you're thinking about raising money or looking for an advisor or just want to bounce ideas off of, please reach out to me. Like, you know, I love when people have like, gotten skin in the game. I think the hardest part for me to, is to have conversations with people who are still, I used to be a lawyer, who are still lawyers and they're like, I, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm like, look, if you're thinking about doing this, quit your job. Like, if you want to do this, quit your job. That's the biggest telltale sign that you're in. Right. If you're not in, like, don't like, don't go around asking everybody, right. don't hey, should I do this, in. should I do this, should I do this, should I do this? Do it or don't do it. That's your own call. And like, that depends on your personal financial situation, how old you are and how much energy you have and all a bunch of things. But if you're in and you're like starting a business and it's got some traction and you're like, hey, how do I start scaling this? How do I get from that 100K to a million dollars? Happy to answer any questions. Happy to talk to you. You can find me on LinkedIn, certainly. I'm at Moise Ali on Twitter. Love talking e-commerce. You know, you and I are in this room on a Saturday. I had a bunch of e-commerce calls earlier today. This this is what I like to do on the weekends. <laughs> Love it. All right, man. Uh, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I need a dollar, dollar. Share with